Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. The Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization, Volume 6, Confronting Modernity, 1750 to 1880, published by Yale University Press in 2019, covers a period in which every aspect of Jewish life underwent the most profound changes to have occurred since antiquity. Organized By genre, this extensive yet accessible volume surveys Jewish cultural production and intellectual innovation during these dramatic years, particularly in literature, the visual and performing arts, and intellectual culture. Elisheva Kalbach is the editor of this Posen Library volume and is the Salo Whitmire Barone Professor of Jewish History, Culture, and Society, and director of the Institute for Jew- for Israel and Jewish Studies at Columbia University. Uh, Francesca Bregoli was a consultant for this volume and is uh, the associate professor at a, a so, associate professor at Queens College and is currently serving as director of the Center for Jewish Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Mayor Yumi was also a consultant for this volume and is a postdoctoral associate at Cornell University in the Department of History, where he is also the incoming Sloven Assistant Professor of History and American Jewish Studies. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So to get started, could each of you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to work on this work? And we'll begin with Elisheva. So when I started the Posen Library volume that we are discussing, I was a professor of Jewish history at Queens College of CUNY, where Francesca is now a professor. And Uh, I was a young woman. I am now an old woman and have been for almost a decade and a half a professor at Columbia, uh, which is to say uh, I was approached by a board of professors uh, appointed by, by Felix Posen, who was the visionary behind the Posen Library. And his idea was to try to make accessible to people who could no longer... Uh, directly confront sources of the Jewish past in their original languages. Uh, It didn't matter which they were. He wanted to bring that all together in one project. Um, And our mandate was to take the best excerpts from all levels of Jewish cultures and to collect them Uh, to choose something that was representative of them, to have them translated from their original language into English, uh, to set a very brief context and to uh, bring them in the best literary translations. Um, Each volume covers a different period. In my volume, for example, primary sources appeared in a dozen or so different languages from Arabic to Hebrew, Hungarian, Italian, Polish, Russian, Spanish, uh, Ladino, Yiddish, and more. Um, And and Felix's idea was uh, to allow the broadest range of Jewish expression to 
find a place within the volume and be completely accessible. And um, this to, to English language readers of all kinds, college students, uh, lay people who are just interested, um, even professional uh, professionals in Jewish studies uh, who don't get a chance to always uh, delve deeply into a particular period. So I, I thought this was a wonderful enterprise. I had no idea how much work it, ent it entailed. Uh, if I would have known, um, I don't think I would have invested as much time as I did, but I'm glad I did it. And, and now it's uh, available to everybody online. Right. Absolutely. Uh, just one follow-up question of, uh, for Sheva. Um, uh, what are the you know what? Actually, uh, never mind. We'll we'll continue in our our, our cycle, and then we'll come back to you, uh, Francesca. Uh, please. I, I I came to the volume because I was invited to consult on Italian sections by Elisheva. So it was thanks to Elisheva that I came to this amazing project, and my my work started in in started and concluded in 2015. So. It's a seven seven years ago uh, work that I did on this, and um, I was excited to be a, a small part of this important volume because the period between 1750 and 1880 in Italian Jewish history, as in really European Jewish history, is a period of tremendous transformations, and so it was a, an interesting challenge to find representative sources that would give a sense of the key issues that Italian Jews at multiple levels were, were facing, dealing with what kind of struggles, what kind of opportunities they went through during this period, which is the period of the Enlightenment, but also the period that leads to the unification of the Italian nation and uh, Jews, we know, were a part of that. Uh, so it, it, was, it was exciting, it was challenging, as we were, you know, talking about in, in our pre-recording uh, chat, you know, what, what to choose, uh, how to, what kind of characterization to give. And, um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to some of these points in, in later moments of this interview. But Thank really, you. it was thanks to Elisheva that, that <laughs> I became a part of this. Right, right. Thank you. And, and Mayor? Um, yes, yeah, so I too um, <clears throat> came to this volume uh, via Elisheva. Um, I actually, I, I'm, I'm grateful to, to to say that now we're colleagues. But I started off as Elisheva's student, and um, it was, uh, I guess, seven years ago or eight years ago that she asked me to do some uh, consulting, some research for the volume, and my contribution was. Uh, kind of global, uh, covered the, the global Sephardic diaspora, whether it was Ladino culture um, or the, the cultural production of Sephardic Jews in the Americas. And um, similar to what Francesca was saying, one of the challenges that, that I took upon myself was to find, um, you know, any kind of record of the activities of Jews in Latin America, especially in the 19th century, which is a sort of this in-between period. Um, it's, it's, it's as the Sephardic diaspora um, is understood to be in decline, and it's before the mass migration of Jews to Latin America that starts taking place at the end of the 19th century. And so it was always a feat to be able to find whether, you know, some printed poetry by, by, by Jews in, in Venezuela or a 
map that was drawn by uh, a Sephardic Jew of the city of Caracas and to, you know, be able to introduce things that, you know, have subsided in arcane collections to a much wider readership Um, and to show that even if it's not, uh, you know, communities of Jews that you might find in these places, but individual Jews still made their mark and were active in a whole range of areas. Right. Right, it really is a fascinating collection. Um, Elisheva, uh, as we mentioned, today we're talking about the sixth volume of the Posen Library, and each volume covers a distinct period in Jewish history. The sixth volume covers the period from 1750 to 1880. Um, what are the distinct features of this period in Jewish history? Well, thank you for asking a very good question, because that's one of the first questions I confronted uh, when given this chunk of time, um, how to characterize it, how to try and uh, whip it into some type of shape. And to me, what characterizes it the most was its dynamism. I opened the volume with a quotation from a German Jewish historian, Isaac Marcus Joost, who said that in, in 1833, in the past 30 years, Jews have traversed a thousand years of history. He felt that there was such an intense pace of change. And to me, that's the that mobility, that uh, sense that we're in a dynamic period, that even Jews who chose to, um, whose reaction, I I called the volume Confronting Modernity. But there were Jews who confronted modernity by saying, no, we don't want to have any part of it. But even they were extremely inventive and creative in the ways they reimagine their Jewishness in this world. Just for example, Hasidism was born in this period. It's not just the Enlightenment and the Emancipation. There's not just one trajectory which all Jews followed. Uh, There were multiple uh, different tracks, different voices, uh, different people uh, asserting their Jewish identities in so many different ways. So it was, for me, that sense of motion, the invention of the railroad, uh, the the spread of, of journals and newspapers. Um, it isn't the invention of print, but it was the tremendous expansion um, of people being able to express every political idea, every religious idea in print and, and spread it all over the world. Uh, that excitement is something I hoped to capture within the pages of the volume. Right. Thank you. And we're going to come back to the, the question of Hasidism and, and what it means. So hopefully we're, we're going to touch on that in a little while. Um, so, uh, Francesca, this uh, volume is, is really encyclopedic in scope and covers a vast uh, range of, of, of material and, and subjects um, and, and authors and, and art forms. How Jewish are the items in this anthology? In other words, are they all identifiably Jewish? in some, in some uh, 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 unique way? That is it's such an interesting question because it really depends on your definition of Jewish, right? What do we mean when we look at the late 18th century and the 19th century? Uh, is it sufficient to label an item as quote-unquote Jewish if the author 
is Jewish, but the text may be uh, a text on uh, the medical sciences. Um, in, in my selections, I think I took as broad an approach as possible, and um, I did include, for instance, one text by a Livernese physician who was discussing uh, medicine. And there's, there's no particular uh, outwardly Jewish reference, but the author is Jewish. Therefore, when you think about the context in which he was living in the middle of the 18th century in Livorno, uh, which at the time was a very important Mediterranean hub, a center of exchanges between East and West um, with a very large, the, the largest, I would say, Jewish community in Italy, at the, at the time, it, you cannot ignore the Jewishness of the writer, even if the subject itself is not specifically on a Jewish topic. When it comes to the 19th century, I think my selections uh, uh, took a slightly different direction because there we, we see an Italian jury that is grappling very much, like Elisheva was saying before, with reinventing, rethinking their identity and grappling with what it means to be a Jew in a world where your Jewishness is not defined necessarily by your belonging to a community, because that is the hallmark, right, of modern Judaism. You could be Jewish, but not necessarily be uh, a, an official member of a community. And and Jewishness takes on so many different meanings once the state becomes the uh, defining element of your belonging to society, right? You're no longer, once emancipation and civil rights, uh, equal rights are given to Jews. So in the 19th century, I think for the 19th century, my selections uh, uh, do deal with very specifically Jewish themes, Jewish education, uh, uh, what it means to reach the broader public um, in a Jewish community. Um, but for the 18th century, I think I had a, a slightly broader uh, definition precisely for the reason that I was mentioning before. Right. And um, Mayor, what are the, I mean, Francesca already touched on it a drop, but if you could expand a little bit, what are the broader historical and political shifts that are occurring during the period that the book covers that are important to understand the Jewish experience in this era? Um, yes, that's a, a, a great question. And um, from my vantage point, which is sort of the Atlantic world and the and the the, the broader Sephardic diaspora, um, there's three things that come to mind. Um, Often the East, um, it's the rise of of like what Elisheva was saying before, the the sort of the the rise and, and the almost the explosion of Ladino culture. Um, and the debate surrounding whether Ladino is a, a like a jargon that, that shouldn't be used at all for anything that's worthy or sacred, or if it should be embraced as a um, a, a medium for uh, re- for Jewish culture, for religious culture, and 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 that often became an internal political contestation between different parties in the in the Sephardic Jewish world. Just to um, interject, uh, if you could just uh, clarify what Ladino means, what Ladino sure. refers to. 
Yeah, so Ladino is um, a, a, a Judeo-Spanish vernacular. It's a, a sort of an old Spanish that was spoken by uh, members of the Sephardic diaspora, especially in the Mediterranean basin. Um, uh, Sephardic Jews who 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 were ex-conversos who who either or, or were conversos in the Iberian world would either speak Spanish and Portuguese, but their cousins and and distant relatives who had left in uh, 1492 or subsequent years and settled in the Ottoman Empire or Northern Africa, many of them. Um, and around the Mediterranean, many of them spoke Ladino, which was uh, sort of an old Spanish that was written in Hebrew characters. But for a very long time, it was a, a sort of an oral culture. And it's in the 18th century that we start seeing a migration to print. Um, you know, one of the selections in the volume is uh, uh, from the Mayam Loez, which was an attempt to take Ladino uh, familiar- familiarity with Ladino and to put... Uh, the Talmud, the Torah, the, the 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 Jewish tradition into a language that would be accessible to the masses, um, and so it extends to songs, coplas, as they were called, and all kinds of literature, uh, novels, theater productions, and 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 other forms of of uh, literature as well. Um, Going back to your previous question, um, the other uh, major uh, shift, political shift during this period, is the rise of independence in the Americas. So, the the Western Sephardic diaspora is anchored in the mercantilist system of the Atlantic world, and and Sephardic Jews are able to flourish and migrate along and across imperial lines, and by the Towards the end of, of, our, of the period that's covered in this volume, that political structure is long gone. You have independent republics in, in Latin America and in the Americas as a whole. And um, it means that, that Sephardic Jews have to find a new foothold and new economic pursuits and new uh, political allegiances in order to continue um, living and subsiding in these spaces. I think I said that there were... Oh, oh, yeah. And the third one is what I study, which is the Inquisition, right? Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, for the much of the period covered by this volume, um, in the Spanish Empire, you have an, an Inquisition. In the Portuguese Empire, you have an Inquisition. And so, um, or uh, not the Portuguese Empire, but only the Spanish Empire. The Portuguese Inquisition is actually um, annulled. Uh, in the 1770s, I believe. Um, and that means that the Jews can't live openly in Latin America. And it's it's with the rise of independent republics in, in Latin America that the beginnings of opportunities for Jews to move in and live openly uh, arise. It's but it's it's a very slow process. Um, several of these countries have Catholicism as the official as the official state religion. Um, and it's it's sort of a, almost a, a 60 to 80 to century long process before uh, Jews will start migrating in, in large numbers. And so the Jews that I study and the selections that I contributed to this volume, many of them are dealing with these shifting cultural uh, 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 trends and also a, a reordering of the world order and the, the politics of the Atlantic world. Thank you. Uh, so to to go back to Elisheva, um, 
how did the political status of Jews change during this period, especially uh, in the European context? And how did Jews respond to these changes? In, in particular, were all Jews uh, in favor of political equality for Jews? Okay, so those are several different important questions. Um, This was an age in which nation states were consolidating around the idea of one central uh, bureaucracy, one central legal system, and um, the notion that Jews have their own semi-autonomous communal structures came to be seen more and more as uh, stumbling blocks or obstacles on the path towards this centralization. Um, In some parts of Europe, uh, let's take the example of England, uh, because their Jews came to England in the early modern period without any uh, particular license, uh, they settled initially as Maranos, Um, eventually came to assert their Jewish identity. Uh, There was considerable debate about it, but no official decision, which in English law means uh, that there is no prohibition. And therefore, uh, Jews begin to settle there. And there's no restriction other than uh, perhaps becoming elected to parliament, which they don't get to later in the 19th century. But there's no restriction on settlement. There's no restriction on the professions they can pursue. Uh, there is a an oath that they have to take if they want to attend certain universities. But again, the restrictions were not, uh, were not really um, anywhere similar Uh, to the kinds of restrictions you had uh, still extremely active in parts of the German lands, uh, which was still not unified, and uh, parts of Italy as well, I presume. Uh, Francesca can speak to that. Where where Jews uh, were still held sometimes under what seemed like very medieval conditions. There were ghettos, Um, or areas uh, within which their residence was restricted. Uh, There were um, most professions and land owning uh, they could not participate in. Uh, Their lives were in many different ways uh, restricted by the, by, from the larger community uh, at the same time as they lived together under an internal autonomous Jewish uh, legal, cultural, um, religious society. Uh, this begins to come apart in most of Europe in this period. Uh, so through the course of the 19th century, uh, Germany is always famous because it was such a tortuous path to finally uh, acquiring legal emancipation, which just means equality, being treated like everyone else under the law, uh, with having access to the law. Um, These were things that most people could take for granted and Jews could not. And therefore, because it was withheld from them for so long, uh, it's debated in Germany for the longest. And Jews tortured themselves into wondering what it is about their Jewishness that they have to give up 
in order to attain this prize that's being held up for them, but was always so elusive. And that's why you have such a, again, a, a deep and philosophical um, examination of what it means to be Jewish. What is the essence of Judaism, uh, the denominationalism, reform, conservative, orthodox, neo-orthodox. Um, these are divisions that came about as a result of this seeming need for Jews to realign themselves in ways that would be pleasing to emancipated society. You don't have anything like that until this day, for example, in the Ottoman world. Uh, there were Jews who modernize along very different lines. Some remain very traditional, some um, are extremely integrated, but they all prayed in the same synagogue. And, they, and that Sephardic model, I think, still holds to some extent, uh, whereas this denominational divide um, that characterize Ashkenazi Jewry in many parts of the world is also still with us. It's a legacy of that struggle. Uh, just very briefly, it's already been mentioned the term Sephardi. If you could just uh, very brief, briefly uh, clarify what the, the term Sephardi and Ashkenazi refers to, um, and also just to your uh, previous point, doesn't the denominationalism within uh, uh, European uh, jury, doesn't that reflect the kind of... Uh, uh, um, um, uh, divisions within Christianity in Europe compared to the more um, homogenous form of, of religion in Islamic countries at the time? Okay, uh, let me take the first question first, and then uh, maybe some of our other um, guests want to contribute to that, because Ital Italiano Jewry, for example, really doesn't fit neatly into the Sephardic-Ashkenazic divide. Uh, and when we use the term Sephardic today, uh, it's almost a grab bag for everything that is not Ashkenazic, which is also really incorrect. Technically, the term Sephardad uh, was used for the Iberian Peninsula. Jews who... Um, who, whose cultural nourishment is from that sphere, um, who are either descendants of or influenced by uh, the culture of Spanish-Portuguese Jewry, uh, are included in what we term, again, broadly Sephardic. Uh, today, that term is also used, for example, um, to characterize Yemenite Jews, um, possibly because of a link with Maimonides at some point, uh, but, but they're not really Sephardic. Uh, the same is true for Persian Jews and, and Iraqi Jews. They never really uh, went through the Sephardic experience. And yet, um, in a kind of flattening, uh, we've divided the world into these two primary cultural spheres, but they're not accurate labels. And one of the things I tried to do in this volume was complicate all those um, labels and show the reader, you know, the greatest diversity of Jewish experience and voices uh, that were out there. Um, you also asked the question about denominationalism. Uh, 
the idea of denominationalism does exist in Western Europe uh, from the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, but I would say that uh, Islam too is divided between Shia and Sunni and, and other. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any religious establishment that hasn't eventually come under some internal uh, foment or, or revolution, so to speak, uh, that causes breakoffs. You know all the jokes about the synagogues we attend and the ones we don't <laughs> attend. Um, so you know, on a on a mega scale, uh, that's true as well. I I don't think it it runs along the same lines as the Christian divide. I really do think that these are different responses to the challenges of becoming. European or becoming Western, and uh, to what extent uh, different schools of thinking are willing to embrace or reject various aspects um, of that culture and, and what they consider to be absolutely inviolable uh, if you still want to retain a Jewish identity. Right, right. All right. So maybe we'll leave that point there because I, I want to ask Francesca another question. Um, so I'm wondering how uh, how the political maneuvering of empires during the period covered in the book impacted the languages that Jewish parents taught their children and which they themselves used in their daily life. Yeah, interesting question. Um, it. The, the Jewish world has always been multilingual. If you if you look at, uh, of course, Eastern Europe or the wider Mediterranean area, uh, what languages Jews spoke in uh, in the Ottoman Empire, right? They, the Jewish merchants had to uh, be able to work in several linguistic environments. Um, when it comes to Italy, we know that Jews spoke the vernacular, uh, so they spoke Italian uh, as their first language. Uh, in different times, they also spoke Yiddish if they came from Ashkenazic areas, or they also spoke Spanish, Portuguese if they came from the Iberian, the Iberian world. So we do find a multilingualism. And as the the processes of state and, as you said, empire building develop in the 18th century, we do see attempts on the part of uh, states uh, and empires to impose specific languages on Jews. So when it comes to the Habsburgs, you see that as part of their attempt to bring the Jews in line with their other subjects, they impose specific languages in uh, documents, in court records, in business records. Uh, this happens, you know, I can, I can give you examples from the Habsburg areas in Italy. Um, Jews are, are required from now on to use either Italian or German in their documentation so that that documentation can be easily accessible to the state and its bureaucratic apparatus. Um, so I'm not sure if that addresses your your question, but you see a, a level of linguistic, uh, we could say, enforcement on the part of the state. That doesn't mean that 
in the home, other languages are not spoken. And throughout the 19th century, uh, Jewish families employed different languages. There were prestige languages, which in certain parts of the world could be French, uh, because as we know, well-educated Jews accessed Western culture to French in, in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire, for instance, in, in Italy, in England. Um, and at the same time, the vernacular of, of the area. Um, it, it, I cannot really speak to linguistic changes in Eastern Europe. Uh, I think Elisheva will probably be better equipped to, to answer your question. Um, but it, it, you know, you raise an interesting, you raise an interesting issue. Uh, how can we think with languages to think about larger political, larger political developments? Um, if, if you know, allow me to go back for a moment to Italy, which is my area of expertise. Um, Italian Jews were multilingual, but Italian was always the language that they spoke, and so there was never an issue for them to communicate freely without hindrance with their non-Jewish neighbors. And and I think when you think about processes of uh, Pascala, the Jewish Enlightenment, in other areas in Northern Europe, in Eastern Europe, you see that Jewish philosophers, Jewish enlighteners, push their constituencies to adopt the vernacular of the larger society, right? So Mendelssohn wants... Jews to learn German. Mendelssohn wants Jews to abandon Yiddish, right? He wants Jews to embrace Hebrew and the pure Moses Mendelssohn, yes, and the pure German language so that they can communicate um, without accent, without being spotted as Jews with their German uh, neighbors. That was not an issue for, or, you know, in, in large part, there may have been accents, but it was not an issue in larger in large part for Italian Jews because they have always spoken Italian. So when it comes to processes of enlightenment in Italy, language doesn't stand out as a sticky point. Um, it, it's more of a sticky point in, in the German-speaking world, I would say. Right. And just to, to clarify, so what you're, uh, what you're basically saying is that for Jews in Italy, they were at least... Uh, or, or often, at least, uh, um, um, bilingual in, in the sense that when they came to synagogue or where they were involved in Jewish religious rituals, they were often using Hebrew. And then when they were outside, uh, or in, maybe even in the house, and certainly outside in, in the in the in the general society, they were speaking Italian. I would say they were multilingual. Uh, Hebrew would be used in the synagogue, and we we should not assume that everybody understood Hebrew. Uh, men that were well educated uh, certainly knew their way around the prayer service, but we cannot assume that women or less educated men that spent their life, uh, uh, you know, pursuing commerce or or other or other enterprises uh, knew exactly what they were saying in the synagogue. This is something that comes up very clearly in the 19th century as uh, Jewish intellectuals in Italy are trying to uh, rethink the prayer service and they grapple with this idea, should we translate the prayer service? And this is, uh, uh, although 
the German style reform movement never took hold in Italy, there were debates about translating the prayer service. And um, there was a consensus that having a translation would be helpful, but Hebrew should still be used um, as the language of the prayer service in the synagogue. So uh, Italian Jewry never transitioned to a translated prayer service. Um, But aside from Hebrew and Italian, depending on where Jews live, because we know that Italy doesn't become a unified nation uh, until 1861, um, and really the the larger unification takes place in 1870, uh, Italian Jews would also speak local dialects, they would speak uh, French if they were in Piedmont. They would speak Spanish or Portuguese if they were in Tuscany. They would speak German if they were in the Austrian-dominated area. So it's a, it's a multilingual Jewish society. And um, I, I think I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I, I would argue that this is the case for most Jewish societies and probably most people really in the pre-modern period, right? They, they would be comfortable in several languages. Right. And uh, Mayor, uh, could you tell us um, to what extent uh, did conversion out of Judaism uh, present itself as an option taken by Jews seeking to integrate into the broader non-Jewish society during the period covered in this volume? Um, yes, but before I, I, I answer that question, I wanted to add uh, to the previous uh, question you posed to Francesca, which is about the relationship le- between empires and political change and linguistic shifts in the in the Jewish world during this period. And um, <clears throat> this is the period when when English becomes a language for Jews, right? Some of the earliest attempts to use the English language to um, either to, to you know, translate the Bible or, or just as a language of discourse in which Jews converse and express themselves is happening during this period. Um, and sort of from you know, my uh, scholarly background, it's very marked in the Sephardic, Western Sephardic diaspora where Spanish and Portuguese were the sort of the language with which you would most closely identify uh, Western Sephardic Jews. And it's over the, during this period that English becomes this alternative. It gets introduced into uh, record keeping, into their own correspondence, into uh, the ritual space as well. Um, and in terms of conversion, um, it, it absolutely does become a way for uh, Jews to become emancipated, to become uh, integrated into the societies around them. One of the interesting things that we see in places like uh, Latin America is that it's not necessarily this sort of methodical attempt to convert, and it's not necessarily coming out of theological conviction, but it's often a matter of necessity or circumstance. If you have individual Jews who are living in the Amazon, um, you know, getting involved in the in the in the in the rubber business, and they they don't have uh, any women to marry and they want to um, create families, many of them chose to marry Catholic women, non-Jewish women, and didn't necessarily you know, try to convert those, uh, their spouses or, or their children. And so you have a lot of conversion by, by convenience or by necessity, but it's, it's absolutely central to the ways in which Jews gain a foothold in this space. Um, 
And I'm sure Elisheva, who's <laughs> written about this, an entire book, could could chime in on this as well. Uh, Sheva, do you want to add something to, to this point? Well, I'll add uh, one important thing, which was one of the questions that confronted me when we began uh, to put together the volume was, who was a Jew in this period? This is a question that's still uh, very much applies, uh, particularly to people who converted out of Judaism. Um, and one of the things I had uh kind of accepted uh, when I began to study Jewish history is that there are different definitions and different criteria. And the halachic criteria of who was a Jew or who is a Jew. The Jewish legal uh, criteria. Correct. Uh, What the Jewish law and today Orthodox Jewish law uh, regards as Jewish is very different from the historical definition. Um, so, for example, you know, generations of crypto Jews or Maranos in the Iberian Peninsula saw themselves and were seen by other Christians as Jewish, uh, even though halachically, according to Jewish law, some of them may no longer have actually been Jewish. For my volume, the criterion I used was did their uh, production or output, their cultural production, stem from a Jewish place. And if it did, uh, whether it was uh, Marx or Disraeli or, um, again, some of the people who are out in colonial holdings of Europe and find themselves uh, simply without women, Uh, to marry who were Jewish. There are many different motives, but all of them were acting within uh, some sphere that still uh, had a Jewish touchstone. And that was my criteria for this volume. Right. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, so now I'd like to ask each of you, I know this is a difficult, uh, maybe painful question, but I'd like to ask each of you if you have a favorite item in the anthology and if you could introduce it to us briefly and read a little bit from uh, from those items. And we'll, we'll start with Elisheva, please. Okay. So um, before I, I introduce one specific item, which I will do in a second, um, It's on page 22 in the volume, so very early. The volume proceeds within the different genres chronologically. Um, I'm I'm going to uh, single out this particular excerpt, which is that of the register kept by a Jewish midwife in the Netherlands in Yiddish and in Hebrew. And she writes uh, that she also had a separate register for the non-Jewish babies she delivered um, in Dutch. I was very taken uh, from the first when I stumbled upon this uh, because of the literate way in which the woman introduced her um, record keeping. So I'm going to get to that excerpt in a moment. Uh, But I did want to say that if you page through just a few pages um, beginning there, Uh, The next, again, chronological entry uh, is that of Rabbi Akiva Eger and a beautiful letter that he wrote um, mourning his wife who had just passed away and uh, expressing his deep love for her. 
this is followed by uh, a letter of Rachel Levin Varnhagen, who was one of those so-called Salon Jewesses who converted out of the faith. Uh, just those three voices alone, I could go on and on, uh, I hope will give the reader a little sense of the adventure that comes just from juxtaposing many different voices. And I tried very hard to also find voices of the previously marginalized. Um, so voices of women in all classes, but also voices of the poor, uh, people who were less educated and not part of any elite, uh, but if they had left some type of uh, textual or visual evidence of their lives, we try to include that as well. So I'll just read a few lines uh, from this um, midwife's introduction to her register. So she writes, I took this book as my possession and I recorded in it the name of those giving birth with the name of the newborn, the date of birth, um, from the day that I began this occupation forward, I prayed the Lord that he should strengthen me and not let my hands falter while I am engaged in this profession. And I'm skipping certain things. She writes, uh, let the newborn be expelled from the uterus like an egg from a hen. I just love that. Um, and uh, and then she writes, she took another book where she wrote in Dutch script the names uh, who were born um, of those who were born to Gentile women here in Groningen in uh, the northern Netherlands. Um, it's just such a wonderful, tiny little introduction to a whole sphere of professional women who were record keepers, who were medically educated, uh, highly literate, um, independent professionals uh, who we hear almost nothing about. All right. Well, thank you for that. That really is uh, uh, quite evocative. Um, uh, Francesca, could you tell us about your selection? Yes. So I want to bring your attention to page 226. This is one excerpt uh, by doctor and philosopher Benedetto Frizzi, a Cohen. Um, and it's actually not the only selection in the text. There is one more selection by Frizzi. Frizzi is a key Enlightenment thinker um, among Italian Jews. And this is an early example. Um, it's a defense. It's an excerpt from an apologetic, polemical tract that he wrote, countering anti-Semitic attacks or what he thought were anti-Semitic attacks by um, Giovanni Battista d'Arco, who was a Mantuan, Mantua is a city in the north of Italy under uh, Habsburg control, um, was a Mantuan nobleman who later will become an important politician within the Habsburg um, uh, Lombardy. And Fritzi uh, replies to Arco, who had put out uh, a treatise looking at uh, Italian Jews and Mantuan Jews in particular, um, in terms of the economic betterment of the state. Um, and uh, while the, the second part of this treatise by this Christian author 
made a number of suggestions to uh, break down the social barriers between Jews and non-Jews, what he calls the ghetto, uh, in which Jews were literally physically enclosed at the time in Italy, but the ghetto in Darko's mind is also a reference to the uh, social and economic, alleged social and economic separation of Jews in Italy. Uh, Fritzi replies, claiming that that separation is not existent. And uh, the separation is not existent culturally, economically, and socially. And while Fritzi, in a way, exaggerated some of these claims, it is fascinating to see how he uses the experience of Italian and European Jews to counter the the slanderous idea that Jews are not part of the larger society. Um, And so the the excerpt here on page 226 specifically uh, deals with Jews living in rural settings. Uh, The fun fact is that in Italy, Jews living in rural settings were often uh, landowners. So there's a there's a, a you know widespread understanding that Jews were forbidden from owning any real estate. That was not the case uh, in in many parts of Europe, and certainly the the wealthy Po Valley in the north of Italy was one of those exceptions where many uh, plots of land um, were owned by Jews. Um, and so he's saying, how can it be affirmed that Jews live in villages, meaning in these rural areas, without practicing professions or trades. As I indicated in chapter two, there are no professions or trades, either manual or and liberal, that they do not practice. In every town in Italy, doctors, lawyers, masters of various sciences, painters, musicians, tailors, carpenters, and teachers of every kind of craft abound. He's he's meaning Jewish doctors, lawyers, etc. More abound in many islands of the archipelago, but we mention this as a passing comment as these are maritime cities, etc., etc. And then he goes on by mentioning some famous Jewish uh, personalities that uh, shed light on 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 the argument, and so this is it, it's for me an interesting example of marshalling the economy and the important role that Jews were playing in uh, the economy of various Italian states in the second half of the 18th century to show uh, that. The anti the, the traditional anti Jewish notion that Jews were misanthropes that Jews were economically parasitic was simply a lie. It was not true. And the bottom line of Fritz's argument is that Jews are already emancipated. Right? They're already so well integrated into society that what we lack is simply the legal rubber stamp. Um, it was a little. And it, it was a little bit of an exaggeration uh, because he, he was ignoring the large swaths of the Jewish poor uh, that existed throughout the peninsula. But it gives us a sense of uh, the kind of argumentation that could be brought um, to to advance Jewish legal status at the time. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, Mayor, do you have a selection to share with us? 
yes, I do. And um, <clears throat> it's a short selection that is on page 497 in the section on music. And it's a short song that is attributed to Moses L. Penha, who is a, a Jew of Sephardic descent living in Curaçao um, in the 19th century. And Curaçao was a Dutch colony that had a very large, one of the most important Jewish communities in the, in the 18th century. Um, and um, this, this song dates to a period where the community was, relatively speaking, in decline. The center of gravity for the Jews in the Caribbean has shifted to uh, uh, continental United States. Um, but we still find... Um, Jews in Curaçao celebrating Purim, which is coming up in a couple of days, in a very public fashion. Um, one of, there's a, a sort of an eyewitness report that says that there was a you know a week long or more celebration in the streets, a carnival that was public in which uh, not only Jews but but many people on the island participated, and uh, the original is in Spanish. And so this suggests that this is a song that wouldn't have been sung in the in the synagogue only with Jews, but it was a way for Jews to, uh, you know, put their Jewishness and their Jewish identity on display to a, a wider audience. And um, we could imagine it's a it's a call and response song. And so we could imagine, uh, you know, someone you know reading the verses or, or singing the verses, and then the crowd chiming in. Um, and I, one of the things that I'm really taken with in this piece is that it's a piece of poetry. And so one of the, you know, huge undertakings of this volume was to render poetry in Spanish into a legible form in English while still retaining um, the poetics. And so the translator, the, the piece is translated by Michelle McKay, Einsworth, she obviously had to take some liberty and change some words while still maintain in order to maintain the rhyme without going too far from the original. So, um, you know, I'm I'm very taken by by this accomplishment, and I'm sure it's every single page has other such feats that um, you know are much more obvious to those who see the original than 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 the readers who look at the English. So, having said that, here is the here is the song. It's called Esther's Triumph. Uh, friends, let's celebrate this day. Viva! Purim, occasion to be gay. Viva! Safe and free from Haman's wrong, let's shout in unison this song. Viva! 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 Esther, brilliant as the sun. Viva! Grand Sultana, king's loved one. Viva! Pleaded mercy for her race. The wish was granted by his grace. Viva, viva, viva. Esther wants Haman condemned. Let him die. So Ahasuerus has him hanged. Let him die. Putting faithful Mordecai in the two-faced villain's place. Viva, viva, viva. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, two more uh, uh, stanzas. And um, what... It, What's really creative or, or by the translator is that she maintained the Viva Viva, so you have a sense of the original, um, but still translated the line of let him die, let him die, because presumably not everybody would know what muera means. Um, and um, it's, it's just a, 
it's something that's like folk, folksy, popular, not not high culture, but low culture, and it's a it's a really rich example of the kinds of materials that are that are found across these pages. Indeed, it's a really vibrant um, uh, piece of writing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. We're, um, uh, there's so much more to talk about. We, I, I sort of promised that we would talk about the, uh, the Hasidic movement. Uh, unfortunately, we, we just don't have enough time. Listeners will have to go to the volume to, to, to learn more about this and many, many other uh, movements and topics that are covered. Um, one last question for Elisheva. Um, there is so much in the volume. It is really encyclopedic. It's a it's a a, a real a treasure trove of of um, of, of wonders. Uh, I'm wondering if there are any particular themes or figures that you would have wanted to include in the volume, but simply didn't make the cut for one reason or another. Well, thank you for asking that. There were no restrictions uh, put on me in terms of who could be included or what could be included. Uh, Initially, we thought we would do um, a CD with music. Uh, Then uh, for various reasons, CDs were no longer the technology and uh, it it became too technically difficult. So that's something, the oral dimension, we now, we listed certain things and I tried to visually represent them and we translated uh, something like what you just heard from Mayer, but we weren't able to include music. If there were a way to do that, and I want to let your listeners know that the entire Posen Library, all the volumes as they come out, are getting put up on the Posen Library website, and they can be accessed for free by anybody who signs up. Um, And there you can have the fantastic aid, the finding aid, of cutting it uh, by subject by specific name, uh, by country, by language. There's so many different ways you can use it. It's a fantastic tool for people who want to study about any aspect of Jewish culture in any period. Uh, And it's also wonderful uh, for anybody who's involved in pedagogy of Jewish subjects, the amount of material you can find here. And every little excerpt is really part of a much larger world now, I would have loved to include many more pages uh, from each of these authors, uh, but this is, you know, what the space given to us permitted. Right. Well, you did a, a really fantastic job with the constraints that you were presented. Um, I want to thank um, Elisheva, Francesca, and Mayer for joining us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.